Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we uh, welcome for the uh, to this uh, second day of uh, asbestonomy. For those of you uh, joining this morning and who did not attend the uh, the opening uh, part of l last night, uh, my name is uh, Philippe uh, Perez. Um, I'm I'm actually a former engineer. I did remote sensing a long time ago, um, and then I became a diplomat for the French government, posted to San Francisco and Tokyo. And just for you to know who is standing in front of you, I now work for a private equity uh, fund in Paris, involved in deep tech. So we only deal with uh, responsible technologies, uh, including recycling, for example. So I'm very happy to hear uh, some of the, the, the technologies that will be discussed today. We have a program today in, uh, it's like a symphony. Uh, we have designed it in, in four movements. Um, it's like a symphony in D major. Uh, so we'll have uh, the diagnosis uh, and then the detection and we'll talk digital as well in the afternoon. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, denaturation of asbestos. Um, Hopefully, we will. We, we saw some of you saw the movie, uh, the documentary by Daniel last night. Um, hopefully, we'll we'll find a way today to go over uh, what sometimes looked like a like a tug of war uh, between opposing poles. Um, some some companies covering up things and uh, uh, patients associations uh, trying to defend their ground. Um, you have see the uh, the big Goliath, the incumbents of the industry, against uh, the the new technologies and the uh, campaigning association. So many things are seem to be sometimes opposed, and we one of the uh, things at stake today uh, would be to go maybe hopefully over that. Um, when when we prepare uh, the whole day today. What I found also uh, very, very interesting is the fact that we, we need to go to understand the past. So if you look at some of the, the, uh, the ancient myth and, and the god and goddesses, you have understanding the past and the, you have this goddess called Nemozine, uh, the, the goddess of remembrance. So we have to understand, we have to look at uh, the history of as asbestos. So that's one thing. Um, we have to document the present and the god of the present was uh, Argus Panoptes. So the, the guy has had a hundred eyes open on the situation. So we have to grab as much data as we can. So we have to understand what's going on. And finally, um, we need to look into the future of, of, of asbestos. Uh, so managing the in-situ situation, of course, and designing scenarios for the future generations. And uh, that would be the oracle of, of Delphi. So I, I guess the oracle will, will tell us at the end of the day that the future is, is bright. So it's super ambitious. The program is very ambitious for today. Uh, we have amazing speakers, you, you will see. Uh, so we, we, we need to understand, we have to combine care, social justice, understanding, technology, everything, politics, economics. Uh, we'll, we'll do our best to bring all these uh, threads together today. So enough of me, I'll, I'll give the floor to Hugo, uh, one of the organizers, and I guess the one who kick-started the whole idea about asbestonomy. Thank you.
Good morning, everyone. So I do hope the night was not too short for those who continue the welcome party in downtown London and uh, make I visited some uh, English pub. So let's be ready for today. That's a big day. So warm welcome to the first ever Asbestonomy edition and the first of uh, many others. I have the heavy task to launch the, the second day uh, following Philip and also to be the voice for all the Asbestonomy organizing team. So that's a huge task. I would like to start by thank you, thanking you all uh, for making the effort to coming here on a sunny Friday and with an event with no track record yet. On behalf of the Asbestonomy team, I would like also to thank you all our uh, sponsors and uh, exhibitors. As a main sponsor, we have CDN, which uh, represents uh, the ASMAT and building surveyors in France and uh, ITG at the TEM laboratories and uh, asbestos services providers. I would like also to thank uh, BCL Event, Jazz Manufacturers for Health and Safety, uh, Delta Nova, Air Pump Sampling Manufacturer, and all our other partners, which is uh, this Asbestos Safety Eradication Agency from Australia, Pro, ESERT, AFL, Asbestos Hub, of course, Demoljack Network, and Victrans. Finally, I would like to thank also all our amazing exhibitors uh, and solution providers. Please take the time to go visit her in the exhibition hall and see those uh, incredible people. I can uh, promise you will not forget your, your visit. So among them you have ITGA, Yucata, Inertam, Socotec, Epicap, Lucian Services, Alea Control and ACM, Aspect Contracts, GEOL, uh, Hyperion Group, the Mavis Knight Foundation, Mesocellium UK, and Yuknar. So let's start with uh, asbestonomy and the idea of asbestonomy. So asbestonomy, that is the science of uh, study and manage asbestos. Back in 2019, uh, I did a world tour attending uh, asbestos event that you might know, such as uh, FAM in Nottingham, uh, ISTM in, um, in the US, SPA in Paris, Asbestos Safety Eradication Agency in Australia, European Asbestos Forum in Amsterdam. And I met people and I noticed that we do not have the same uh, science of asbestos management. So, and neither the same asbestology, meaning asbestos knowledge and interpretation. It is so great to have so many differences in our world, but I don't think so when you deal with asbestos. Wherever you are, mining countries, importers, users, you've banned asbestos for 25 years now, or only one year ago, or you plan to ban asbestos, we still have the same purpose when we deal with asbestos. It's like to limit the risk of exposure and to eliminate further asbestos-related disease. Because yes, asbestos-related diseases are preventable. But 90,000 people die, die sorry, from asbestos-related disease each year, globally. And we all know, even if we stop asbestos exposure today, we will sadly deplore more and more asbestos-related diseases and deaths. This is why one of the main asbestonomy goals is to support the people that will suffer and who will suffer from asbestos. We are really proud to support the Mavis Knight Foundation and Mesocellium UK in their purpose to give up to fellow victims and also to support patients and family. Asbestonomy joins them and supports them. You as well, we support them as a community. As you know, a part of the ticket sale will be redistributed at the, redistributed, sorry, at the end of the, of the event to the Mavis Knight Foundation. 
Please go meet also those amazing people that are here. They have a stand uh, in the exhibitor uh, hall. So please say hi to them and uh, listen to their stories. So Asbestonomy will keep supporting all actions and research um, that aim to find better asbestos-related disease treatment and care. But even if we do, we also must to prevent the future asbestos-related exposure, right? And this is a daily job of the majority of us here. Solution providers, government agencies, regulators, researchers, event makers, and better safe than sorry is our common motto. Knowledge is power, and knowledge awareness is one of the keys to prevent future asbestos-related disease. And we must do it now, before the new energetic wave will hit us, and to protect our workers that we do the renovation, but also before our old building become too damaged to protect our people and our environment. And this knowledge, we'll have to share it with everyone. So while making this uh, work tour that I mentioned to you before, I've met uh, Haven at our fabulous event, the European Asbestos Forum. She was a great source of uh, inspiration. Sharing makes her stronger, as Haven often says, and she knows a single truth about that because she is doing the European Asbestos Forum since uh, 2017. And I shared the same feeling. For the story, we did ban asbestos in France in 1997, did a lot of research, innovations, we wrote like 1,000 laws, but this knowledge is not shared as it should be. And we need to smartly aggregate all local knowledge, all local know-how to all move faster toward a safer world. Asbestonomy aims to gather international experts, professionals to share, back, to share best practices and also to create synergies between all third parties. Knowledge is then one of the key pillars of asbestonomy and knowledge sharing will be like the main word for the world conference and the world industry. Thanks to our amazing speaker that will bring their expertise, at the end of the conference you will know the best practices, know how to detect asbestos, you will know how to manage asbestos in situ thanks to digital tools, you will know the risk, where is asbestos, know when to remove asbestos and how to do it safely. You will know how to treat asbestos waste and you will know the future innovation of the industry. And even maybe get uh, new ideas for new innovations to better prevent asbestos risk. Because asbestonomy events aim to create also a stimulating uh, environment. It is where knowledge is shared and where ideas pop up. It is where industries, government ad agencies, building owners will meet the solution providers. It is where business starters, students, will meet partners to close the gap between innovation and daily product and services to prevent future asbestos exposure. Speaking about the future innovation, I will end the introduction by speaking about the future of asbestonomy, because that is the first edition, but that is not a one-shot. We, as a community, we will do at least one event per year, and you will soon know the next one. You can even vote about the location at the entrance. I uh, heard uh, Vienna, Madrid, Brussels. Who knows, but there will be an asbestonomy 2000 and 2003. We will also support more and more associations, charities, foundations, which support asbestos victims and research. We will together support asbestos removal projects that cannot be funded uh, despite the needs. We will promote, of course, global asbestos, global asbestos ban. Sorry. We will push regulations. We will straighten hours, but we will also help countries that didn't 
than asbestos yet to set up a regulation and be faster, smarter, and efficient than we did in the past. We will represent our industry as one voice because we all need to combine together. We will create synergies with all actors on the field to prevent asbestos exposure. For your information today, we will sign a memorandum of understanding with IOA, that is the International Occupational Hygiene Association, to collaborate further. And also, part of the ticket sales will come to the uh, will be redistributed to the European Asbestos Forum that will be held in Amsterdam in 10th and 11th of November. So I hope to see you there. So yes, I think asbestonomy is much more than an industrial event, and you've just got on board right now. So I hope you will enjoy your day with us and the rest of the journey because, uh, as I say, it's not uh, one shot and uh, it's not finished. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hugo. Um, so we are now moving to the, uh, the first movement of the day, um, the first part of the conference called uh, uh, Asbestos State of the Art. We're going to start with, uh, with a video uh, that was sent uh, to us by Nikolai Willumsen. Uh, he's a member of the European Parliament. Um, he's from Denmark. Um, he's from the left group at the European Parliament. And he's the one behind the revision, the current revision of the uh, uh, EU asbestos directive. Uh, so Nikolai could not be with us today, but he wanted to uh, convey his very strong message to all of us. So we're going to listen to Nikolai Willemsen. Many thanks for the invitation to speak at this very timely event. First, let me introduce myself. My name is Nicola Willemsen, and I'm a member of the European Parliament and Vice Chair in the Left Group. I'm elected in Denmark, and I'm representing the Danish left-wing party, the Red-Green Alliance. Before being elected to the European Parliament, I have been eight years in the Danish Parliament as an elected member. I'm deeply involved with both the question of workers' rights and the climate crisis in my work here in the European Parliament. There is no doubt that we urgently need a green transition of our society. The Green Deal with the new renovation wave will trigger the energy renovations of millions of buildings in the EU. This is necessary for the green transition because we need energy-efficient buildings. However, what is key for me is to make sure that the green transition will be socially just. Otherwise, many workers will risk their lives in the green transition due to exposure to asbestos. Asbestos kills approximately 90,000 people every year in the EU and has been and remains one of the main drivers for occupational cancer. Asbestos is still largely present in buildings and infrastructure built before 2005 when the EU finally banned asbestos. Concrete walls, floors, ceilings, roofs, pipes, insulation and many more materials produced before the asbestos ban may contain highly dangerous asbestos fibers. And due to the necessary green transitions millions of buildings will be opened up. Before, this is imperative to have a plan for the safe removal of the asbestos that our construction, so our construction workers will 
meet when they open up the buildings. This is why I, as rapporteur on the legislative initiative report on better protection of workers from asbestos, presented a proposal for a European strategy for the removal of all asbestos and how to deliver a socially just transition. The report provides recommendations for several core elements that should be included in a European strategy for the removal of all asbestos. First, it is necessary to have a European Framework Directive for national asbestos removal strategies. The national strategy should include the assessment of existing asbestos in the building environment and clear timelines and milestones for its safe removal. Furthermore, the directive should include minimum standards for public asbestos registers, mapping all existing asbestos. This, of course, should follow up, be followed up by a financial framework for the support of the removal as well as a strengthened enforcement of labor inspectorates. Second, asbestos at work directive needs to be updated and the occupational limit value must be lowered. It has been 12 years since the last revision. Some aspects of the directive are obsolete and not in line with the latest scientific knowledge and technical state of art anymore. We need to ensure that the workers receive the necessary certificate training to deal with asbestos. Far too often we see posted workers of third country nationals being sent in by the employers to do the dirty removal job without proper protection, training or even warning about the risk of asbestos. These unacceptable practices must be ended. But we also need to lower the occupational limit value in line with the latest available knowledge from scientific medical research. Therefore, we propose an occupational limit value of the 1,000 fibers cubic meter and to have a list of all asbestos-related diseases to be recognized in the EU member states. Third, we need better recognition and compensation of asbestos-related occupational especially because the latency period can be up to 30 years after being exposed. Last but not least, we need mandatory screenings of buildings before both energy renovations and selling and renting out of the buildings. This is key. Key to make sure that all member states will have a detailed mapping of the presence of asbestos for the national public registries. But, most importantly, it will ensure that buildings are screened before being opened up for renovations. Billions of Euro, euros will be going into the renovation wave. 
millions of buildings will be opened up. Thousands of construction workers will be exposed to asbestos. And yet, there is no plan on how to handle this. And that is exactly why we need a comprehensive European strategy for the removal of all asbestos with the legislative action behind it. We need to ensure the protection of workers and the safe removal of asbestos. Together with the shadows from the other political groups here in the European Parliament, we managed to ensure a very broad support for the ambitious proposal here in the European Parliament. Unfortunately, this does not alone make it a reality. For all of this to become a reality, we need the European Commission to step up its ambition. Because we cannot accept losing thousands of lives of construction workers in the green transition. That is why we are continuously working as a negotiating team in the European Parliament to put pressure on the European Commission to save the lives of construction workers, firefighters and other workers and also citizens who are at the risk for exposure. To invest in new technologies for the safe removal of asbestos and put an end to the asbestos once and for all in Europe and the rest of the world. Because we need the EU to be a front-runner in the fight against asbestos in the world. It is unbelievable to me that asbestos is still being used around the world. Therefore, the European Parliament call for a global asbestos ban. We need the European Commission, the Member States and the actors in the field to work together to tackle this problem in the EU and in the world. We need trade unions, victims organizations and employers to work for political solutions. And we need companies in the field to raise their voices because their expertise is key. Therefore I hope that you will participate in the debate about an asbestos-free Europe. I hope that I can count on your support to put asbestos on the highest agenda. Thank you very much for the invitation to speak today. Thank you uh, to Member of European Parliament, uh, Nikolai Willumsen. Um, and you, I guess you can send your comments and questions directly to him, uh, to, the, to the Parliament, if you have some. So now we're going to move to the live uh, speakers. And uh, it's a great pleasure uh, to start with, with Yvonne. Uh, Hugo, in your opening speech, you, you mentioned Yvonne. You probably know, need no introduction in this audience. But uh, you, you're based in the Netherlands, uh, but your action is, is global, really. So um, you were trained um, as, a, uh, as a lawyer specialized in laws um, occupational laws for accident and, and, and diseases. Um, now you're a jurist with your own uh, consultancy firm. And, and above all, you're the founder of the European Asbestos Forum. Uh, and for more than 20 years, uh, you've attended events, you've spoke at events, you've organized your own events. Um, so you, uh, you're rooted in, in, in the topic uh, of asbestos. You, you'll be our uh, first speaker for this session. Uh, so you have the floor and we'll give you qu questions after that. Please uh, help me welcome uh, Dr. Yvonne Waterman. First of all, it's wonderful 
to be together again after all these COVID years and to be able to see everyone and hug everyone. And it's just wonderful to be here. I would like to thank the organizers of ASP Astronomy, both for inviting me and for their very kind generosity. And as the founder and president of the European Asbestos Firm Foundation, I always make a point, indeed, it's been mentioned, that sharing makes us stronger. And I think this is very true also for organizations such as Astronomy to work together. We are very much on the same side of the fence and we should work together and look forward to eradicating asbestos. It takes all of us. So I'm very pleased to, to be here. Now, it was already mentioned that yesterday a film was shown about a, a Belgian person, Eric Jonk here. Uh, those of you who didn't see the film, it's called Breathless and you can buy DVDs on, on the internet. There is something very particular about Eric Jonk here and I just want to spend a few minutes to, to speak about that. Um, Eric Jonk here was born in a house owned by Etenit right next door to the Etenit factory in Capella op den Bosch in Belgium. And his grandfather worked there and his father worked there and the house was owned by, by Etenit. And he and his four brothers had a wonderful youth there because they would basically go with their uh, bicycles and uh, cross over mountains of raw asbestos behind the factory and uh, make huts and tunnels out of broken asbestos roofing plates and the like. And they found it entirely normal that every day dozens of open trucks would drive past their home filled to the brim with raw asbestos. And he once told me that it was a big nuisance because it completely ruins the hi-fi. And, and his father asked the, the owners of the Etonid factory set and the managers. And his father asked the, his boss, well, is there any harm in asbestos? And the manager did this along his desk. And he said, and he said look, if it's dangerous, you'd never see me do this. But of course, things took a certain event. And his grandfather died of mesothelioma. His father, who also worked at the plant, died of mesothelioma. Then his mother died of mesothelioma. And one by one, as I met him at conferences all over the world, as of approximately 2002, I would see him very regularly everywhere. And he would say, another one has hit the dust. Dust being a, a very particular word in this context. And another one, his first brother, his second brother, his third brother. And then, less than a year ago, I received the message, Eric Jonkir, the sword of Damocles that was always decades, we knew this, on a silk thread above his head, it has fallen down and he has received the diagnosis as well. And at that point, he asked me to uh, edit and publish uh, his autobiography for him, which very much came out of the blue for me, but I was uh, very honored to, to do that and with great urgency as well because of the situation. So I have um, a small edition of these books. Uh, I have brought four of them here and I will um, have a silent auction. You, if you want a copy of the book, send me a message on LinkedIn, explain why you want a book and what donation you want to give. It's entirely up to you. 
at the four offers that I like best, perhaps for the motivation or for the amount, that's also a consideration, but not a deciding factor, will receive a copy from me today. And I'll close the silent auction today at 12 o'clock exactly. Um, there are more, so if you want a, a copy yourself, uh, again, message me on, on LinkedIn and we'll take care of that. I've brought one copy with me as a gift to our organizer and host. So Hugo, would you please come forward? And of course, being Dutch, I had to wrap this up in tulips. <laughs> it's my pleasure to give you this book written by Eric Jonk here, and you will find it an exceptionally motivational book. We all should read this, and it gives you such courage to fight this asbestos fight. The best of reasons are written in this book. Thank you very much. So here's uh, the book, and you can see Eric. This one actually was in uh, a demonstration in Hong Kong. I still have my own t-shirt, but he went through all the major asbestos conferences uh, for the past two decades, raising awareness and explaining why we need to fight asbestos. And again, it is very well written. It's a very easy read in English. And it's so motivational. It stands for everything that we stand for. So, thank you very much. Now just a, a very small presentation due to the time constraints. Um, I would really like to impress on you that we are in an age of scientific breakthroughs, of technological innovations. There has never been a time where these moved as quickly as this time that we are living in now. We have new understanding of the fragility and the vulnerability of our environment, of our homes, of our duty towards the next generations to provide safety and a, a safe and healthy environment. We need to make the most of it. And we were promised, we were assured even decades ago, that the statistical wave of asbestos victims would gradually decrease, almost literally, that it would die out. And this is not the case. It's not the case at all. We are realizing more and more that asbestos is truly all around us, that exposures still happen every day, and every day, therefore, also, a new wave is created and we have to put a stop to that. Nobody needs to die from asbestos. Asbestos deaths are entirely unnecessary. It's as simple as that. Every day, there is more science towards asbestos diseases. We used to think that there were two major diseases, mesothelioma and asbestos-related lung cancer, but nowadays, the list is something like approximately 15 diseases, and new ones are added all the time. Think of mouth cancer, and tongue cancer, and laryngeal cancer, and bronchial cancer, and lung cancer, uh, intestinal cancer, cancer of the womb, uh, colorectal cancer. All of them can be caused by asbestos. And I was even assured recently by Professor Arthur Frank that the very smallest of asbestos fibers can travel freely throughout the body, even into new unborn bodies. Imagine that. Who would want that 
for his or her child. We need to take action. Asbestos is, created, is treated as an obscure thing. It's really not. The European Commission calculated several years ago that the cost to society for every asbestos victim is approximately 4 million euros per victim. And we just heard Nikolai Willemsen say that there are approximately 90,000 victims across Europe every year. I hate to say it, but I think that is a vast underestimation. I think it's probably a number of times 90,000 times 4 million euros per victim. Imagine if we were to put that amount of money, I'm a jurist, I'm good in words, I'm not good in calculating, but it's a lot of, of zeros. Imagine if we were to put that amount of money for one year towards raising, aware, raising awareness and finding a cure. Just one year. How wonderful that would be. What an effect that would have. So, we can't go on like this, that's obvious. We need to take action, and we can take action, and we can stop this wave. Only last week, the ILO founded a new principle that everybody has a right to a safe environment, also in the occupational context. A fundamental right, a safe and healthy environment. So, we need more awareness, we need cheaper asbestos removal techniques to make it more accessible to the whole population. We need to destroy asbestos. It's not sufficient, as somebody pointed out yesterday, to take it out of the ground and put it back into the ground and leave it as a problem for future generations. We need to destroy asbestos. We need policy makers who know what is happening on the innovative sector with regard to asbestos. We need more innovations. We need the innovation makers and the policy makers to know each other and to help each other. And we're all on the same side of the fence. It takes everyone. It takes us all. And they are both here, the innovators, the awareness raisers, and the policy makers. So we will tackle this beast together, this asbestos beast. We will find solutions. And I would like to, to finish to say that we will fight and eradicate asbestos together. And there you have it. So maybe we're going to keep the questions for the end of the session, unless you have a burning one right now. Just one question from the audience, and then the rest of the question at the end. One question for Yvonne. Well, anybody? I'll be here for the whole day. That helps. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't see you very well against the lights, but apparently Sean Fitzgerald. Yes, has a question. I'm always willing to, uh, uh, to, to lodge one in. Uh, the 90,000 uh, uh, figure, uh, do you know if that includes the UK? It should, because they're very old figures, really. 
I have read figures myself also of the EU going towards 150,000 people, so I think 90,000 is outdated. But again, it doesn't include victims, um, five times as many victims from lung cancer as from mesothelioma. It doesn't include people with uh, laryngeal cancer, for instance, and many other, many other asbestos-related diseases. And if you were to count all of them up, and there is a, a very good overview in an article that you can Google, it's called uh, The Global Asbestos Disaster by Professor Yuka Takala. And there is a statistical attachment there, which is very much up to date. And you can simply Google that, and you'll see, even for the Netherlands, that suddenly we have four times as many asbestos victims as we thought we had. So I have put more questions towards that, and um, our National Health Commission will soon, in this autumn, provide new statistics, and I think the effect of that will resonate throughout the European Union, and we'll have a better statistical understanding of how many victims we truly have, and they will be far, far more than the old outdated concepts. Well, you know the saying, you have um, lies, very bad lies, and then you have statistics. There are far more than 90,000. So we're now moving to the second speaker of this session, Sven de Mulder. Uh, Sven will join me on stage. Uh, you're the team manager at OVAM, um, the public waste agency of the uh, Flanders region in, in Belgium. Um, you have 20 years experience in asbestos removal, so a lot of experience on stage. And uh, you're the man behind one of the most ambitious plans to phase out uh, asbestos and to get funds uh, to support the uh, building owners. Sven, uh, you have the floor. Good morning. I'm Sven. Uh, I'm a policymaker, and I want to tell you my story. It sounds a bit like an introduction for an AA meeting, and in fact it is. I want to tell you my story, and we are an anti-asbestos meeting called Asbestonomy. And for me, the, the birth of Asbestonomy proves that there is a new wind blowing, a new momentum regarding the awareness and the approach to the asbestos issues. After the ban in Europe and many other countries, the theme, asbestos theme, it seemed to, be, to become a dusty old subject for grumpy old men, but we were wrong. And now, now we see that uh, the new challenges, and you were facing a new risk of a new wave of asbestos victims. And we finally realized that the ban on using asbestos was just the beginning. And that was a realization that the Flemish government also uh, realized. And for that, they issued and approved a policy plan called the Action Plan in order to make Flanders, uh, northern region in Belgium, in order to make Flanders asbestos safe uh, gradually and at least by 2040. So in my presentation, I will give you a brief insight in this policy plan, but most importantly, I will try to give you an answer to three, according to me, three important questions. How did we obtain support? Support from both owners, stakeholders, and politicians at the end. How do we try to activate owners? And how will we, in the end, achieve our goals? 
So Flanders, uh, Belgium, eh, situated in Europe, just next to the mighty UK island, as you see on the picture. And the Flemish region is the northern part of Belgium. Belgium is divided in three regions. And the regions, they have their own government. So we had a lot of governments in Belgium. And environmental policy, and, in, and it is in environmental policy that our legislation is included. And the purpose is to protect public health, to protect people and environment from exposure to asbestos. So environmental policy is a regional competence. The occupational health is a federal uh, competence. In Belgium and in Flanders alone, there were approximately 20, more than 20 asbestos processing sites. Uh, five or more of them were asbestos cement manufacturers, the big names like Eternit, John Mansfield. And we are trying in Belgium for decades to become world champion in soccer. We hope that it would be the case with our golden generation we now have, with the Brun and Hazard and Lukaku. Our hope is fading away. Um, luckily, we were, or luckily, sadly, we were world leader in importing raw asbestos per capita in the 60s and the 70s. We imported around 54,000 tons a year on raw asbestos fibers. And we made a lot of our manufacturers, our processing sites, they made a lot of asbestos applications. And there were more than 3,500 known asbestos applications. Every, every year there's a new application that surveyors can find. And our buildings, and it all went to our buildings, our infrastructure. And we estimate for the Flemish region that there are 3.2 million buildings potentially containing asbestos. 2.8 residential buildings, almost never with an asbestos survey because there's no legislation uh, mandatory for that. 0.4 million buildings um, are non-residential buildings like offices, schools, public buildings, and they should have an asbestos survey because it's an employer's obligation, it's mandatory, but it's not, of, it's not often the case. Um, at the time of 2018, before the action plan was approved, we found out that the chance of asbestos being present in one of those buildings is 70 to more than 98% if there was no thorough renovation. And we did some sampling um, in 300 Flemish school, random schools, and we found that in 98% of the schools, asbestos was present, and in 60% of the cases, asbestos was in a very poor condition and an urgent measure was necessary. So they were just not aware. Same for demolition service. In more than 90% uh, of a demolition survey where destructive asbestos surveys are included, 90% of them, there was asbestos found. So schools, farms, social houses, it was always in the same range. So based on several estimations, we estimated as a starting point in 2019 that there are still 3.2 million of asbestos presence, uh, still present in our buildings and infrastructure. So that is our starting point. So there's a lot of asbestos, so vast quantities in our buildings and infrastructure. And there's also the problem that just the mere presence of some asbestos applications starts to become a risk, a danger, an exposure risk. And that's the case because all those different kind of binding compounds, like cement and other stuff, uh, plaster, it's weakening, it's falling apart due to aging, weathering, uh, 
uh, other external conditions like, for instance, in farms, livestock gases, vibrations, the movement of building parts, air flows, and so on. So you get exposure risk just by the mere presence of asbestos applications. A typical example, of course, asbestos corrugated sheets, where weather conditions, hail, freezing, heat, uh, movement out of the roof truss, and so on. So you get small asbestos cement particles coming into the sediments of rain, of rainwater drainage systems, sewage systems, or in the soil underneath if there's no gutter uh, at the roof edge. Um, and an apparently local, specific, isolated problem, like, for instance, a deteriorated um, insulation around central heating pipes in a boiler room, can cause uh, a much wider uh, risk. For example, the pictures in the right were taken in a Flemish school, where the boiler room also was used as a stock for chairs and tables. And several times a year, teachers, children, and their parents they came into the boiler room, they took the chairs and tables, they wiped off the white asbestos-containing dust, and they put it uh, in school to organize a party. So, given these challenges, we were able to convince the Flemish government to take action. We, we suggested a policy plan, which they approved in 2018, and it led to the whole new set of legislation, in the environmental legislation, and a whole new set of instruments to support owners to, to, to map the asbestos problem and to, to help them to remove the asbestos problem. This year, at the end of this year, an asbestos survey will be mandatory when you sell your home, your, home, your apartment, your building. It will be mandatory for all buildings potentially containing asbestos, so year of construction 2000 or older. By 2032, we want to have a national, uh, a regional, region, national. Um, we want to have from all potential, for all buildings, potentially continuous asbestos and asbestos survey present. It's an owner's obligation. 2034 is a first removal milestone in which we uh, try to achieve a removal of all asbestos cement in the outer shell of buildings. And besides that, we also want to have removed all accessible, friable asbestos. And then we come to our final goal, the asbestos safe condition, in which all remaining accessible asbestos in poor condition is removed. So that is, uh, in a nutshell, the, the plan and the goals we achieve. But so I come to, the, to one of my first questions, is how did we get the support from both uh, stakeholders, representative of building owners, and finally the politicians themselves. Well, a very important aspect, as I used in my introduction, was new story, storytelling. There is a new situation of the beaten track of occupational health and asbestos industry. We have a false feeling of safety after banning asbestos. The problem was not solved by banning it. We have new insights based on new studies. There are new risk situations. And even more, the risks are not just in an occupational context. No, the risks are very close to you at your own home, for your own children, at school, at the office, maybe when you're in a hospital. There are lots of examples of exposure risk that we detected. So we are now facing at this time 
a, a spike in, in asbestos victims, the number of asbestos victims due to yeah, regrettable witnesses from a regrettable asbestos part. We are, we are, we are facing a new victim wave, as Yvonne also said, if we don't undertake action. So now the, the potential uh, scope of people being exposed is 6.4 million citizens in Flanders and not only workers and employees. So that was uh, the, the, the new story, the new insight, and we based and to get uh, based on that, we constructed, we designed a policy plan, and we went first to our stakeholders. And stakeholders, you have allied stakeholders like the building federations, the unions, and you have stakeholders who who doubt or doubting or resisting. So together with our allied stakeholders. We, uh, we achieved, uh, we could convince our stakeholders who were doubting or resisting. And by the time we went to politicians, yeah, by the time we went to politicians, and when they would consult their constituency, their voters, their, those, their stakeholders were already convinced of our policy plan. They were already supporting it. Besides that, for politicians, it was also very important to back our policy plan. It was backed with several studies on new risk situations, um, and especially a social cost-benefit study. And this study proved that the asbestos safe scenario had a gain, to, a gain compared with doing nothing, business as usual, and compared with the asbestos-free scenario. And I know asbestos-free, it's a much more powerful and sexier headline, but it's just simply not realistic, both practically as financially and, and there's no politician that, that will, uh, will go for that. Um, we also conducted some pilot projects in order to test new instruments to support owners. So with a total package and with this new story and with the backup of our stakeholders, all of our stakeholders, we could convince both uh, politicians in the coalition of the government as well as the opposition parties. Another important expert, uh, aspect to, to achieve that uh, convincing the Flemish government was the fact that the concept of the policy plan and the architecture, as you, as you would say, was uh, really achievable and affordable. It was, not, it was proportional and we didn't go for gold plating. Uh, it, would, it would not be accepted by, by politicians. So it's a risk-based approach. In an asbestos-safe condition, there will be still asbestos present, but it will be mapped and it, is, and it will be in good condition. It will be not a risk to use that building safely. We also initiated new instruments to support owners, and then I mean nudging instruments to make it easy to remove asbestos, to make it easy to map asbestos, uh, financial support, of course, and also practical support. And the last very important aspect um, to convince a politician was the, the insight that you have to combine this asbestos safe strategy with the huge challenge we face for all our old buildings in Europe um, to make them energy neutral, to make them energy safe. So we have this challenge of a huge renovation wave. You have to combine both challenges. It's a no-brainer. Now we come to the second question, how will we activate the individual owners, especially the owners, private owners of a home, an apartment? So 
then the asbestos service certificate comes into place and it's a key instrument, uh, it will be a key instrument for us uh, as well as to activate the owner. So uh, as, I, as I told you, it will be mandatory upon selling at the end of this year. It will so also be mandatory by the end of, uh, by the end of 2031. Every building owner will have to have such an asbestos survey. Um, and the survey report itself, uh, we, it will be generated and delivered by, by OVAM, it's my organization. And we designed the template, the layout and the text in co-creation with behavioral experts. And the purpose was to make it understandable for normal people as well as useful for professionals. So there was a lot of uh, effort going into in how we divided the contact, what the reading level was, um, and also that there was a clear call to action and that they could easily say, okay, that is my problem, that is the action, the measures I have to take in order to obtain or maintain an asbestos safe condition. So in the right side you, you see uh, in Dutch um, a preview of the front page of the asbestos survey report as we are now designing. Besides the asbestos survey, the action plan identified specific target groups which we found were prior to, to approach schools, of course, uh, social housing, agriculture, because 50, almost 50% of the surface of asbestos cement roofs are, we can find in agricultural companies, and care facilities, because they face the same problems as school. And with each of them, OVAM, initiated a sector agreement in which they, the sector representative, they commit themselves to achieve goals in order to, be, to, to, to have asbestos safe buildings. And in exchange for that, OVAM offers support. And the support, um, some examples of the support are a free collection of asbestos cement on, on location, or we offer framework contracts that you can use with certified asbestos removers. We offer a free asbestos survey update um, and we also give financial support uh, for schools and for schools for instance it's uh, up to 50% of the asbestos removal cost. So in the period between the start in 2018 till now the Flemish government already released more than 100 million euros in funds to, to to support, to support the instruments, to support owners in uh, surveying and removing asbestos. Some examples are the private, also every private owner in Flanders, in every community, they can use a cheap collection of asbestos waste at home, as you see in the right picture. It's especially, uh, it's especially focuses on small annexes, typically with asbestos cement corrugated sheets or slates. Um, removed by doing their self or with working with a certified contractor is both possible. And you also see in the instruments the clear political view to combine both the asbestos safe policy as well as the energy renovation angle. So we initiated subsidies to combine the removing of asbestos cement roof and installing insulation of the facade, facade and the roof. We also subsidized for non-residential buildings the removal asbestos roof combined with the installation of solar panels. 
And for private owners, they could also use in certain regions the subsidized group removal yeah, with, with co-financing. So I come to my third and probably most important question. How will we achieve our goal? Uh, our goal will be achieved when we, in our central database, see that every of the 3.2 million buildings potentially containing asbestos has an asbestos survey and has a conclusion, asbestos safe. Then we will know, okay, we will, uh, will have achieved our goal. So this central register, this central database, will make it possible for us to search, to, to conduct queries, in order that, to see that we are still uh, on schedule in the following years. And we will also be able to take targeted measures to and adjust policy, adjust instruments to maybe certain uh, target groups that need more than others. So it will also be possible to, to make it accessible for law enforcers. For instance, if there are urgent measures necessary, or they are uh, very uh, high exposure risk, then law, local law enforcement can access the database and they can enforce in order to, to persuade the owner to take measures. Okay, so I came to the end of my story. I'm not at the end of my rope, but um, keep in mind that to the banning of asbestos is just the beginning. Eh? And I'm really convinced that an, an approach on tackling the asbestos issue uh, anchored in environmental policy but also aligned to sustainable building management and uh, aligned to renovation, energy renovation policy is, uh, is one of, has a great potential and has a great opportunity to tackle and solve the new asbestos problems after the ban. Uh, thank you. Thank you again, Sven. Um, and now to close this session, we, uh, we're going to Charles Pickle, so the, the local speaker. Um, so Charles um, is the founder of the Airtight uh, Asbestos Campaign, uh, aiming at changing the, the standards uh, at managing asbestos in situ. Um, as most speakers, uh, beginning of the day, he has all, over 20 years experience in, in, in asbestos. Uh, he founded uh, some time ago uh, the leading uh, UK uh, asbestos consultancy firm, uh, which has been sold, I guess, now. So his stakes has been sold a couple of years ago, so there's no vested interest. So, uh, Charles, you have the floor. Good morning, everybody. Enchanté. C'est important to parler un petit peu français. Mais c'est tout. <laughs> okay, the first thing to say is that all asbestos is dangerous, uh, but the main risks today are not actually here in the UK or in Europe. Uh, they're in those countries which unfortunately are still mining, milling, manufacturing and installing asbestos. So take home message, all asbestos is dangerous. But thankfully, due to the work of our previously and currently from our legislators, uh, enforcers, and you lot, give yourselves a round of applause, please. The surveyors, the analysts, the campaigners, the removal consult contractors, everybody here, we do such a marvelous job in clearance by clearance, survey by survey, piece of law by piece of law, taking away 
uh, the UK's number one occupational killer. We may be talking about legacy issues with asbestos now, but it's still absolutely lethal. So, legislation works. Hopefully this will move on. Good. Um, well, a little about me before I... I'll talk about the campaign now. I started working in asbestos um, in, in 1998, seems a long time ago now. And about three years after that, I, uh, I got fed up with my boss, uh, as you do. So I started my own company, and, and we were always kind of ruthlessly innovating and adopting, seeking out and adopting the latest technology. It's the right buzz to work in, the, in a company at that stage, and it was always about a, a kind of ruthless pursuit of innovation, uh, technology, and, and indeed excellence. So I, I carried on, and it was doing really well, and basically the bigger the company got, the the less interested I got in the actual business, and, but I've still maintained this absolute passion for all things asbestos and asbestos consultancy. I'll just define, I'll give you my definition, if you like, of asbestos consultancy, which is stopping people breathing in asbestos fibers. So that was my sort of guiding principles during the, during the company. And, and as I say, the more I was got surrounded by accountants and advisors and lawyers, the less excited I got about that stuff, and the more I wanted to just bang on about, just do asbestos consultancy. And what kind of upset me and compelled me to act was, was whenever I was talking to colleagues about our, exist, our current asbestos management regime here in the UK, you know, I'd ask them a question about what do you reckon to the inspection regime, or what do you reckon to the air monitoring regime, or the training regime, or the <laughs> accreditation regime. They go, oh, it's not that good, Charles, is it? No. And, well, no, it's not. And then we'd talk about it for five minutes and slurp a sort of tepid coffee. <laughs> and I'd go, well, what are you going to do about it? And they'd sort of go, well, it's not my job, Charles. And I thought, well, oh, that's no flipping good. This is asbestos, UK's number one occupational killer. Um, so, so I thought, well, if no one else is going to pipe up about this, I think I'll be daft enough to do it myself. So, so here I am, three years into a campaign, highlighting the dangers of asbestos in situ and elucidating the way forward in terms of best practices of how we can actually solve that problems and those problems pragmatically. So today I'm not going to be talking about any fresh evidence or any, any, any heavy science. It's all established, comfortable stuff. I did all the the heavy science and the fresh evidence back in February for a select committee, and I'm pleased to say we won the argument. Now, a big up for our HSE, uh, who, have, um, who have given us this absolutely outstanding record generally on health and safety. Generally, our health and safety here in the UK is superb. So thank you, HSE. And this is what you can do, really, when the magic comes together. It's nothing about... It's nothing about, you know, you don't have to be a particularly rich country here. There's not a correlation to do with money. It's to do with attitudes and techniques and, and, and practice and guidance and all of this. When it all comes together, there's a sweet spot there. And, and whenever we get together and we talk about this stuff, you know, we can, we can, we can activate that sweet spot and make, and make the magic happen. So that's what, that's what we're all here about today. I was talking to many people last night about a paradigm shift in asbestos where we kind of move on and we accept that asbestos in situ might just be a risk and, and then we move on to embracing the techniques to, to really address those uh, issues. So we're tremendous at health and safety, uh, but we're not that good. Uh, generally at uh, asbestos safety. So 
let's be let's be clear. This is a this is a historical graph. We're looking at historical, well, current mesophilia mesothelioma rates or current-ish, um, and uh, as a result of uh, historical um, asbestos imports. And as you can see, the UK, unfortunately, is in a league of its own. There's clear water in between the UK's death rate from mesothelioma and uh, everybody else's. And that's perhaps, well, probably, almost certainly because we imported more asbestos per capita than anyone else in the world, and more specifically, you know, more amphibole asbestos than anyone else in the world. And, and you don't really get to hear about this by attending the normal conferences here in the UK. You've got to come to an international conference and, and then the, the um, scales from your eyes fall from your eyes and you realise that actually we're not that good in the UK. In fact, we're kind of, we've got the worst record in the world. And we've been like that, really. Well, we've had legislation since 1931, after the Merriweather and Price Report. We had the 1931 Factories Act. So the point is that if, it, if, we'd had sufficient, if that had been sufficiently robust in 1931, we wouldn't have any deaths from asbestos today. But it, the legislation has always been too little too late. And that's forgivable, actually, because the science has moved on. And, uh, and it and it's perhaps reflects the, the latency period of mesothelioma. Well, it was, in fact, it was forgivable until about 1980, but it hasn't really been for forgivable since then, because we've known. So, so all we can really do against this is, is, is use the best technologies and the best techniques uh, and have, have, have the best current practice. So, so now we're going to look, on, look at you know, how our current practice is uh, compared to others. But before we do that, a quick kind of rundown on our law, at least here in the UK. Our law is superb, actually. It's dynamic and it's future-proof. And, and it basically, it, it involves the concept of, of evolving and, and updating as, as, as best, practice, best practice evolves and updates. So that's absolutely superb. So, so what we ought to be doing whenever a, best, a new technology or technique looks at it, it comes out is looking at it carefully and, um, and invoking it into our, into our legislative body and our practices. Uh, we do that for other areas, and that's perhaps why our health and safety generally, but not with asbestos, is, is very, very good in the UK. And the other thing about, about the law is behavior doesn't protect you from asbestos, because when you touch asbestos or when you inhale asbestos, it doesn't actually hurt. It only kills you later in life. I was talking to a gentleman last night, and I said, you know, <laughs> how many times have you shoved your fingers in a, an electric plug? And he said, I've done it once, and, and I've done it once as well. And, and I said, have you done it again? And he said, no. <laughs> well, nobody does. Nobody's daft enough. Your behavior self-regulates. That doesn't happen with asbestos. The point is, therefore, that we, the law and the practice and the guidance needs to be sufficiently strong to protect ourselves from our own behaviors. Okay, so here we have a table con comparing and contrasting different national approaches and different, um, different asbestos uh, management regimes. So you've got to really step outside your own, your own indus industry circles, your own national circles, out of our echo chamber and come to a conference such as this or such as uh, the European Asbestos Forum and, um, and seek out the best, speak to the best people and speak and seek out best practice. Well, you can see really that, you know, I, well, I'm of the opinion that our industry here is, um, our practice here 
is somewhat ignorant and hubristic about the current risks from asbestos in situ. Therefore, I think we're repeating the same sorts of mistakes that we have done since the 1930s. We know, and we have a growing trend of mesothelioma deaths just from those who've worked in buildings containing asbestos. They've never worked with asbestos directly. Now, that matters because that situation continues to this day, and, and, and as Sven mentioned, the materials are not getting any better, they're getting worse. And it matters more so because our children, the next generation, uh, are working, uh, are exposed uh, to these buildings and therefore to the, to the exposure from the asbestos there. So, what's utterly depressing, depressing is that we can reasonably expect mesotheliomas into the 2060s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. We've just got to do something about that. It's unforgivable. We all know we've got the knowledge, and if we've got the knowledge, we've got the obligations. So you can argue really about the efficacy of any one of these given measures up on, on the board here, but together there's a clear winner and there's a clear loser, and there's, and there's various countries in between. But the UK, you know, we're, we're, we're missing best practice by a country mile. What's happened in the last 20 years is that the technologies such as the testing, testing technology and availability of those techniques, and indeed on the technologies of databases, digital, digital uh, data collection, manipulation of databases to enable, to elucidate what the problems are, those two, those two factors have increased enormously over the last 20 years. And, and the inverse is true of the costs. The costs of doing these have, have plummeted over the last 20 years. So there's been a complete inversion in that cost the best practice argument. And, and we've yet to reflect that here in the UK. We need to do some serious catching up. I'll repeat, we've got the worst asbestos legacy issues in the world. So I'll just bang on about uh, one specific aspect of, of practice here, which is our air monitoring regime. Well, there's only really one relevant safety measure which we use for asbestos a known zero threshold carcinogen in the UK's number one occupational killer. And it's set, uh, it's set at a known dangerous level. So, so, so which kind of upsets me. Uh, and it, it upsets me for two reasons. First of all, the test, you know, the first legal test, is it safe? No. The, 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 to be safe, we've got to be, if I get the right button, I'm not sure if I will, we've got to be right down here. You know, that, that's the level where we're, where the, the risk of mesotheliomas, according to some relatively recent work, is, is known not to be elevated. And the second, second issue to, to make you aware of is, is there best practice, is, is there an example or examples of best practice where others are doing it better than us? So that's the second legal test, uh, best practice. Well, yeah, but yeah, there are, I'm discussing them here today, which is fantastic to be discussing them. The French, the Germans, and the Dutch all have considerably tighter levels. <laughs> So, so I'll move really on. It was against this background that I began to get increasingly upset about, <laughs> about asbestos management here in the, in, the, in the UK. So, you know, it, it'd be sort of, I'd be on my first coffee in the office on a, on a Monday morning and the phone would go and it would be a client on the phone and he'd say, oh, I don't, oh, oh can I speak to, um, I don't know, uh, Jeffrey, not his real name, obviously. Um, and, the f and the conversation would be something like, oh, hello, oh, 
AIB, no problem, okay, usual, uh, yeah, yeah, football, yeah, uh, debris on the floor, classroom, yeah, no problem, okay, we'll get someone around to clean it up straight away, run an air test. So we'd pottle along, we'd send someone along, <laughs> and they'd run the air test, and two hours later, they'd produce this piece of paper entitled Reassurance Air Test Report, and they'd give it to the head teacher or the, the office manager or whoever. Now, the office manager of a head teacher or whoever, they wouldn't be interested in the gobbledygook numbers underneath. They'd just be interested and in understand the title, reassurance. But that reassurance is only as good as the, t as the sensitivity of your method, and that's set at a known dangerous level. So it ought not to be called reassurance air test at all. It ought to be called, I don't know, do you feel lucky air test for a zero threshold carcinogen. It's just not good enough. That is not best practice. And it still upsets me, and we can do so much better. And ever, so, so this picture is actually one of mine from back in the day in, in 1999. I was working in, not here in the UK actually, but I, I was, my job was to, as an analyst was to measure the fibres, and routinely the fibres were above 0.01. So I'd go, I'd only been doing it a year or whatever, and I'd go to the project manager and I'd say, oh, Terry, your fibres are 0.0125 today. And he'd say, ah, good job, well, it's a bit high, isn't it, Terry? Oh, no, Charles. You, you don't realise, you know, we've been working with asbestos for a very long time. That's minuscule concentration. You don't need to worry. Things are so tight and well-controlled these days, you know, just, just, good job. Don't worry about this. And I had only been doing it six months a year. I didn't, you know, I thought, well, Terry, I've been doing it 20, 30 years. He knows so much better than me. So, <laughs> so that's it. Uh, so I wasn't, I was kind of, but now I reflect on that previous exposure and I'm kind of in the, in the worry zone. And that's not a good feeling and that probably applies to many of you here today. I'm not very happy about that. Um, so to bring us more up to date, another little anecdote. About three years ago, I was at a conference, a prominent UK conference, and I was standing, presenting a paper um, in, about UK asbestos, about why we need better legislation. And a senior HSE in inspector came up and he said, uh, and I asked him, uh, Inspector, how do you explain the rising mesotheliomas amongst um, female school teachers? And he said, oh, well, Charles, you see, they were probably exposed um, uh, on holiday jobs working in building sites in the, in the, uh, when they were at university. Yeah, that's the right response. I, I was done for, luckily the bell rang and, and he, I wasn't able to say that's a load of rubbish or something a bit cruder than that. Uh, but I was, and a couple of others in the room were with me then and I just thought, well, that, no, that, that's not tenable. That's not plausible, because how many educated young women worked on building sites in the 1970s? It's just rubbish. <laughs> the staringly obvious conclusion which you've admitted, just walked past, failed to acknowledge, is that they were exposed to the asbestos whilst working 40 or 50 hours in, in, the, in their workplaces, namely schools riddled with brown asbestos. Now that matters because those buildings are still with us today and that matters even more because those materials won't have, will have deteriorated, those fibres will still be coming off. And there's no evidence to say that they're safe. There's no sensitive air monitoring to say that they're safe. Uh, and um, so, so I began to read and, and, and talk, talk about this stuff and, and the more knowledge you have, the more obligations you have. And, and I thought, well, I'm running the biggest company in the country talking, you know, practicing this stuff. So I might as well walk the talk or talk the walk, whatever the phrase is. So then I became motivated, really, to take a big opener to this enormous can of worms of poor asbestos management practice here in the UK. So once I 
exited the company, I decided to, to start this campaign. And we're three years in now, and I decided to do it differently. There was no point just kind of going to speak to the same people and using the same techniques, so it was going to be different. And uh, that old maxim springs to mind. If you don't change anything, you can realistically expect to make no change. So the campaign's all about trying to bring best practice to asbestos management today. Uh, and it's all about preventing future deaths from mesothelioma in 40, 50, 60, and 70 years time from now. We can't do anything about those fibers which have already been inhaled, unfortunately. Yeah, moved on. Where are we now? Uh, right, so, so the results. Well, uh, three years on, um, I'm quite pleased really with the results we've got. Normally, you wouldn't really, you know, could have just got absolutely nowhere, and I thought in the first six months or in the first year, we were going to get absolutely nowhere. But the results are now tangible. Things have just moved on. Again, I was delighted to speak to um, uh, Sean Fitzgerald earlier on, last night, and we were talking about paradigm shift, and I think we're there. That really resonated with me. And the paradigm shift is, well, our existing line for asbestos in, in situ here in the UK is that asbestos in situ is of zero risk. That's now untenable. Nobody, hopefully, is going to defend that line anymore. Asbestos in situ is a risk, and we've got to do something about it, and that's the paradigm shift. Also, due to conferences like this, we've got a much better awareness of the techniques and the technologies. Thank you, Sven. Now, if we've got this awareness, and we've got this awareness of technology on the te te techniques, and we've got this awareness that we do have a clear and current risk, then we are together obligated to do something about it. So I was very pleased to get into conversation with Stephen Timms for two reasons. He uh, chair of a Work and Pension Select Committee, one of our parliamentarians, sits in this wonderful building. Uh, gives you such safe faith, faith in democracy and, and faith in the system and faith in people when you've got an, a sensible and intelligent person who's prepared to listen to you. So he commissioned this inquiry into um, the efficacy of our, of our asbestos management regime here in the UK. And I'm pleased to say that he came up with his this big long list of his recommendations, which I won't bang on too much. Some are firm recommendations, and some are go away and do more research on it. Some are low-hanging fruit, and some are uh, really big, beefy recommendations. So I won't talk too much about that. But what I will say is that if the UK adopted all of these recommendations, we would have here the best asbestos management regime in the world. And we deserve nothing less because we've got the worst legacy asbestos problems in the world. So let's hope, really, that some of those, some of these recommendations don't just sit there and gather dust. They're actually enacted into law. So, so that's the next um, phase. Now, if you happen to be in the HSE or if you happen to be in the uh, Department for Education. Listen up, because I'm now going to tell you how it ought to be done. So if it, Sven's already done that as well, and others will. Um, okay, we've got to, it's all about prioritization. It's all about asbestos safe rather than asbestos free. But some of the stuff is just too hot to handle. We, we know that, for example, only 12% of the asbestos in the UK was the, was the amphibole asbestos. All asbestos is dangerous, but when it's in situ, we need to perhaps worry about the the amphiboles more than, than the chrysotile. 
Then we look at the fiber types. Again, amphibole is from the research, established academic research, and from the mesothelioma stats, considerably more dangerous than the chrysotile. Children, the earlier you are in life exposed, the longer the cancer's mesothelioma has to do its evil work and manifest itself. A child of five has um, five times the risk of an adult of, say, 30 of contracting mesothelioma when, when exposed to the same number of fibers. Clearly, children, therefore, are more vulnerable. And the likelihood of disturbance, you know, these, these two, the fiber, um, they're just not in the algorithm at all at the moment. Likelihood of disturbance, we've just got to accept that disturbance is more likely to happen when you've got a building full with boisterous children. So, when we come into policy and advice here, we can park academic nuance because it doesn't help. You've got to be totally unequivocal. So, yes, there is lots of academic nuance, but I'm just going to park it. I'm going to be utterly blunt here. Very blunt. So, how on earth do you prioritize a plan? Amosite, 100 times the risk. Children, five times the risk. Schools and social housing, twice the risk. The algorithm spits out a figure of 1,000 times the risk. You've got this unholy trinity of multiplicant risk factors. When you've got these, management in situ just isn't going to work. And the mesothelioma stats from, for example, teachers tell us that management in situ is not sufficiently robust when you've got this terrible combination, amosite, children, and schools, and social housing. The existing algorithm spits out... <laughs> Uh, a score of, what is it, 12, R1, for example. Uh, well, and that kind of, it, it totally, it's totally inadequate and excuses inaction. That's the real risk. And, the, and these schools, these structures just need to go. We've got to accept that they're just too hot to handle. We can, um, uh, existing regimes uh, and a longer strategies uh, um, more than acceptable for the lower risk stuff. So, so we're talking about... Floor tiles, stair nosings, gaskets in boiler houses. But this stuff, off the dial, I'm afraid you can't manage it in situ. And, and the mesothelioma starts from teachers now and later in life. School children will be the same. Uh, we can, that's baked in. So that's where you start on the national strategy for, for prioritized removal. Primary schools, first five years, we've only got about 1,500, 2,000 of them again. If we had a database, we'd know, but we don't. Database would be very useful. And then you move on to secondary schools, then barracks and stuff like that, and uh, nursing accommodation and office blocks, and so on and such forth. Sensible strategy. And in the meantime, we ought to be using the very best air monitoring techniques to ensure ourselves of the ongoing safety of these buildings prior to, prior to demolition. So what are, we, what are we gonna do next? Well, we can't undo past exposure, unfortunately. Um, but we all now, now that we know, and we do know about the risks from asbestos in situ, and we know what to do about it, and we are therefore obligated, it's even our law, we're obligated to do something about it, to highlight the dangers, raise awareness, speak up, uh, liaise with our legislators and those who can uh, make a difference, and um, really address the problem of, of our age, which is here, here in the UK and in Europe, which is asbestos in situ. It's, um, it's great to be talking about this, and it's great to be focusing on this issue today. So this is a paradigm shift, the risk of asbestos in situ. And together, 
we can do it. That's what Yvonne said, and I agree. Together we can do it. Thank you very much. Now it's time to wrap up this first session of the morning. Um, sometimes individuals have to take uh, um, public matters in their own hands and we to move the needle, and we've seen this morning that we have three people who do and who did. Um, one of the most powerful plays in history, uh, Antigone, sometimes you have to stand up against the rules when the rules are outdated or non-ethical. So I'd like uh, to give a big round of applause to three of our modern Antigones today. Thank you very much for that. Thank you, Yvonne. Thank you, Sven. And thank you, Charles. So we have a coffee break now. Uh, we are going to reconvene hopefully around 11.10. Um, so enjoy the coffee break and we'll have the second session about uh, asbestos detection. Thank you.